Good morning. Let's pray together. Our Father, who is sufficient to preach your word and who is worthy to hear it? Both of these are the highest callings in the universe. And yet you have qualified us by your mercy in Christ. Help us now to be attentive to your spirit's power. Guard us from all error. And cause us to be more grateful for your grace. More cheerful and willing in our obedience to your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray and through the Holy Spirit. Amen. Show of hands, how many of you took piano lessons as a child? Okay, keep them up. How many of you forgot everything you learned with piano lessons as a child? Show of hands. Okay, we're tracking. We have something in common already. I I took piano lessons for about six years of my childhood. And while I always seem to grumble about the amount of practice time piano required, I tell you what. When I finally learned a song through and through, I would wear it out. I would uh, actually neglect my lesson assignments for that particular week because I was so enthralled with the fact that I knew how to play The Entertainer. You know that song? I would play it over and over and over again as fast as I could because I could, as fast as I could. It had become that ingrained and familiar to me. But I remember one particular lesson, which I sat down beside my teacher on the piano bench and immediately attempted to impress him by playing the entertainer as fast as I could, as casually as I could, as carelessly as I could. He wasn't as impressed as I was. He smiled, though, and he asked me a question that I continue to remember to this day. He said, I see you can play this twice as fast. Uh Can you play it twice as slow? Of course. And I began. His request seemed tedious. His request seemed all too easy. But what I discovered was that The slower I played the song, the more difficult the song became. The more complex the song became. The slower I played the song, the more I began to detect previously hidden errors. I had been playing a wrong note here. I had been thrown off rhythm here. I had skipped a note in the bass there to my own embarrassment and dismay. Familiarity can be embarrassing to a 10-year-old learning how to play the piano. But familiarity can be the cause of grave danger and consequence in the Christian life because it causes us to overlook and to underestimate what God has said. Our passage this morning is one that is probably familiar to all of you. It's one that we tend to overlook and underestimate. It's one we know quite well. We're going to be taking a break from 
our study in the Gospel of John this week and directing our attention to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there. And if you don't have your Bibles, the page number on the Bibles we've provided for you is page number 976. Our text is Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 10. What we have in this passage is the clearest, most succinct summary of our salvation in all of Paul's letters, in all of the New Testament, and actually in the entirety of Scripture. Why we are familiar, why, are, why we are content, excuse me, with mere familiarity with this passage is beyond me. Because Paul in this passage is describing the very heart of our faith. He puts these Christian words we used into their proper context and place. Words like grace, saved, faith, works. And as we read this familiar passage and expound upon it, expound upon what Paul tells us in the previous chapter, Ephesians 1, expound upon this great plan of redemption that God planned even before the foundations of the world. My prayer is that we will be awestruck together as a church with the wonder of the thought, this happened to me. God did this for me. Maybe some of you here this morning who have yet to possess this joy for your own, I pray that you will be filled with longing for this reality and will cry out to God, Oh God, do this for me. Make that your prayer this morning as we read. Follow along with me as I read Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Actually, Let's start at verse 1, as Paul gives us all our testimonies at once and traces out our predicament in verses 1 through 3, God's solution in verses 4 through 7, and our new position in verses 8 through 10, which is where we will remain in our time together this morning. Starting with verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
For by grace you have been saved, through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And this is God's word. Paul is answering in verses 8 through 10, two related and consecutive questions. The first question he's answering is, how are we saved? How are we saved? We see that in verses 8 through 9. And the second question he's answering is, why? For what purpose have we been saved? God's salvation is far from purposeless. On the contrary, he has crafted this great salvation to be so wonderfully remarkable that to live in discordance with it is to deny our own experience of it. Let's examine Paul's answers to these important questions. First, how are we saved? We need not look far. Paul tells us in his opening words, we've been saved by grace through faith. But before we get into answering the how question, I think we all know there is a more pertinent and obvious question that we must first answer, namely, what does it mean to be saved? What does that mean? We use that word, we play it twice as fast, right? We play it twice as slow. Do we understand it? What do we mean by this word saved that we see so often and use so often? Let me assure you, friends, that being saved means much more than merely being forgiven. And being saved means much more than merely having undergone some transaction with God to ensure that you are going to heaven. It is that, but it's more. We must understand this. According to Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to be saved is to be delivered from death. And even more than that, it is to be rescued from God's wrath. Look back again at verse 1. And you were dead. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't consider yourself saved. Not familiar with that term, you don't really see any need for it. And you might insightfully be responding, well, I don't feel dead. I came here, I'm moving, aren't I? Yes. No one denies that. No one denies that dead men can move. Not even Paul. He says in verse 2, not only were you dead, but you were walking, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Who is that? It's the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Dead men can move. It's biblical. 
only dead men will float without a fight down a river whose rapids are becoming increasingly violent and hostile, rushing toward its inevitable and destructive end. Only dead men. Paul says that we were following the course of this world. And by our own lifelessness, by our own dead weight, we were moving. We were actually picking up speed and hastening toward God's justice and condemnation. We're all moving. The question is, which direction? Are you following the course of this world? Are you floating downstream? Our Lord Jesus preached a sermon on a mountain. Recorded in Matthew 5 through 7. Near the end of his sermon in verse 13, he says at the top of a mountain, the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. Or to keep in accordance with our river metaphor, The river is quite thrilling that leads to a sudden cliff. And the thrill of the moment can deceive even someone as alert as yourself. I plead with you, don't be deceived by the majority. There is no strength in numbers here. Do you see how Paul groups us? with the rest of all humanity, in verse 3? Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. What does that mean? Obeying every bodily impulse and carnal desire without question. This is us. Dismissing the warnings of our conscience the law court of God in every human heart that says, God is watching. Dismissed it. And the result? We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Maybe you're hearing this for the first time this morning. No. Maybe you're listening to this for the first time this morning. And you're terrified. And your first reaction is to exclaim, I gotta do something. I gotta swim. Everybody turn around and swim back. Paul reminds us, however, in verse 1, we're dead. We were dead. Dead men can't swim. Dead men can't be heroic. Dead men can't reach out and grasp onto a broken tree limb or a log or a boulder to try to stop moving. Dead men can't even cry out for help. They can only float and pick up speed toward the river's end. But God, verse 4, but God, 
being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Only God can save. Only God can deliver us from death and rescue us from his own wrath. And he has done this through a man named Yeshua. Jesus, whose name means God saves. This Jesus is the one of whom the psalmist speaks in Psalm 40. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. This is what God has done for you. God in Christ has drawn you up out of the violent waters, rested you on the shore, and raised you up to walk in newness of life. That's what it means to be saved. It all happened so fast, didn't it? So fast. But Paul helps to explain how we are saved. He tells us that we are saved by grace through faith. These are the two inseparable companions, as it were, that accompany salvation. And as I mentioned earlier, Paul puts these terms that we use into their proper context. This is the right shelf for this term. It's in the right place. And he does this by using the two prepositions, which, when translated into our English Bibles, are correctly rendered as by and through. So how are we saved? First, we are saved by grace. We are saved by grace. Grace is what God gives to dead men. It is his undeserved, actually his ill-deserved, hell-deserved favor and blessing. Grace is the basis for verses like Romans 5.8. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Grace, as one man has said, by definition is initially unasked for and undesired. We don't want it. We don't ask for it. Aren't you glad that God didn't take your opinion into consideration when he chose to save you? Friends, this is what we call sovereign grace. And it's the only hope for men who can't save themselves. Dead men who can't save themselves. Only God can save, and he does so by his own glorious and sovereign grace. Now you might be saying, thinking, feel like a victim here. I feel like more of a victim than a recipient. Yes. <laughs> That's how grace works. But we shouldn't be lopsided in our theology. We must follow through 
with Paul's entire thought. He doesn't only say that we've been saved by grace. He goes on to clarify in the same breath that we have been saved through faith. What does that mean? Most of you are aware that by now that uh, my wife and I are expecting our first child due December 1st. And right now, ever since the 20th week of pregnancy, inside Mary's womb, that precious son or daughter of ours is being nourished and given life by Mary's own blood. No blood, no life. This blood is applied to our child through an umbilical cord, a tube, a conduit that transfers what that child needs that gives the child life from Mary's body. No umbilical cord, no blood, no blood, no life. The umbilical cord doesn't save so much as it unites the child and tethers the child to what does save, right? Namely, the blood of the mother. That child is sustained by blood through an umbilical cord, and sinners are saved by grace through faith. We must never elevate our faith above God's grace. Both must be present. But we must be very careful not to have faith in our faith. Does that make sense? We as modern men and women have this unbiblical notion. We've acquired this. That faith is merely mental assent to a particular set of Christian doctrines and that that mental assent saves you. The argument goes something like, no, I know that I'm saved because I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul didn't tell the Philippian jailer, believe that you believe. In the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. No, he said, believe in Christ. Christ is the object of faith, not ourselves, not our own faith. If you're trusting in your own faith, you're still trusting in yourself. It's only when we look away from ourselves as the solution and trust in Christ and in the grace of God that we are practicing true saving faith. Just in case we misunderstood Paul on this topic. He clarifies for us in the next phrase. And this is not your own doing. What's not my own doing? All of it. Not your own doing. Salvation is not our own doing. It is the gift of God, he says. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. There is a world of difference between the way I react to a gift and the way I react to a paycheck. Paycheck is about justice, right? 
You earn it. You don't receive it. And if that paycheck doesn't get to my account on time, I'm making a phone call or five. When you receive a paycheck, your eye is glued to the stub, right? Checking the calculations and deductions. Make sure I don't get gypped. But a gift is about mercy. You receive it. You don't earn it. Where does your eye go? Immediately to the giver. And the prevailing question, even if unspoken, is, what did I do to deserve this? What could I possibly have done to deserve this? You've surprised me. Didn't ask for it. Didn't even desire it. Didn't know I was supposed to. But you just gave it to me. That's a gift. It's about mercy. Paul answers our question even before we ask. He says, I'll tell you this much. It's not a result of works. What do you mean works? What's a work? A work is anything that you do to make God's gift to you a paycheck. And they can range from the most obvious to the most subtle. From pilgrimages to quiet times. From lengthy fasts to church attendance. From overseas mission trips to putting spare change in a charity bin on your way out of the grocery store. Anything that you intend to put on your life resume and present to God as your ticket to heaven is a work. And it cannot save you. Only God can save. Only God can save. Why did God do it this way? Why did he choose to do it this way? Why did he plan it this way before the foundations of the earth? So that no one may boast. So that no one may boast. You see, here's what happens when we boast. When we boast... We praise ourselves. When we praise ourselves, we rob God of his glory. And when we rob God of his glory, we plagiarize God's divinely copyrighted work of redemption, work of redemption that he set in motion before the foundations of the earth. And we say, I did that did that we are saved only by the sovereign grace of God and it's all a gift receive it as a gift not a paycheck not a result of works the second question Paul is answering is why or for what purpose have we been saved why have we been saved J.I. Packer, in his wonderful book, Knowing God, it's a book I think many of you have read, Packer makes this statement about the role of grace in salvation. Here's what he says. One sentence. Pardon 
is the heart of the gospel. But it is not the whole doctrine of grace. Let me repeat that. Pardon the forgiveness of sins in our Lord Jesus Christ is the heart of the gospel. If it's not the heart of the gospel, it's not the gospel. But this pardon is not the whole doctrine of grace. My heart, the doctors tell me and the science books tell me, is roughly the size of my fist. It resides in the core, it resides in my chest and is the core of my being. But I can't be reduced. It's not the totality of Drew Dilde. Drew Dilde is six foot three and steadily increasing in weight as we speak. It's not my totality. I can't be reduced to a fist-sized heart. It's the same with our understanding of the gospel. We must learn to cherish the pardoning aspect of grace, the forgiveness of sins in Christ as the heart of the gospel. But we must also be sensitive and careful not to reduce, never to, re- to, to reduce grace as only pardon. Paul tells us that we have been saved by grace without works. But he also tells us that we have been saved to work by God's grace. In other words, grace is not only pardon, but transformation. Grace is not only pardon, but transformation. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Well, what do you think? Did Paul change his mind in a matter of one sentence? In verses 8 and 9, he's condemning works. And I don't think that's too harsh to say. Paul is condemning works. Verse 10, Paul is condoning works. F.F. Bruce has observed, No one more wholeheartedly than Paul repudiated good works as a ground for salvation. And no one more strongly insisted on good works as a fruit of salvation. Charles Spurgeon has affirmed, we have been clear upon the fact that good works are not the cause of salvation. Let us now be equally clear upon the truth that they are the necessary fruit of it. And Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer who championed faith alone, he said, works are the necessary and inevitable result of saving faith. That's what Paul's saying here. This isn't schizophrenia on Paul's end. This is cause and effect. In verses 8 and 9, Paul is condemning faithless works. Just as he does elsewhere. Romans 14, 23, Paul is trying to uh, mediate between two parties who are clashing about Jewish food laws in the church. Can we do it? Should we not do it? And Paul says, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Why? Because, cause and effect, the eating is not from faith. 
for whatever does not proceed from faith is what? Sin. Therefore, in verse 10 of Ephesians 2, Paul is talking to saved people. By grace you have been saved through faith. And he tells them, get to work. He tells them, we are God's workmanship. It's the Greek word poema, meaning work of art, masterpiece. Just as the Sistine Chapel is Michelangelo's masterpiece, and people who see it admire him for it. So you, Christian, are God's workmanship, his work of art, his masterpiece. When people observe your life, are they drawn to admiration of God's workmanship? Do they praise God for the work he's done in you? This is the calling of every Christian. Our Lord Jesus commanded us, let your light shine before others so that they might see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Cause and effect. Paul tells us that we have been created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works. We as Christians wait and long for the day when God will make all things new and recreate the world that man and sin have destroyed. But Paul's encouraging us. Don't sit on your hands and grow weary. You've already been made new. You were dead in your sins, but now you've been raised with Christ so that you might do the good works of Christ. What are these good works of Christ? What is he talking about? One pastor has put it well. These good works are the works which Christ will do through us when he has truly come into our lives. My friend, there is much work to be done. Pay closer attention to the seemingly menial tasks, seemingly random circumstances and situations that come your way. My new neighbors pray in their front yard to Mecca. They are blind to the gospel and have no Christian witness. You think it's random that I moved there? God has given me a wife and a child to raise and bring up and serve in the Christian faith. Is that insignificant? Is that random? Is that menial? Even in this church, what needs need to be met? Open your eyes. Look around you. What people need to be discipled and brought up in the faith? Are these tasks and circumstances menial or random? Or did God prepare these works beforehand for you? For you. I'm going to save him. I want him to do this. I'm going to bring her to myself. She's going to do this. This is the calling of every Christian. This is to be the lifestyle of the Christian. These good works were not created to be dabbled in and volunteered for whenever we have time. These works were created to be indulged in. Look at the phrase of our passage. That we should walk in them. 
we who were once dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked and indulged in, you remember, are now called to walk in a completely different direction. We're called to walk in obedience to God and for the glory of Christ always, every day, who saved us by grace without works so that he might save us to work by God's grace. May that same grace continue to conform us all into the image of Christ as we place our trust in his work, in Christ's work, not ours. And as we strive through the Spirit's power to obey and walk in all that he has prepared for us to be. Let's pray together. Our Father, may the word we've heard not be rootless, but may you drive it down into our hearts that we might do all that you have said. And as we respond in song and prepare our hearts to celebrate the Lord's Supper as a church body, grant that we would be collectively reminded of your grace and that what we would be nourished by your promise that Christ's body was broken for us. By grace we have been saved through faith. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name we pray and through the Holy Spirit. Amen.